Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Nehemiah. I'm taking one large step towards the end of our study through Ezra and Nehemiah, and today we're going to be looking at both chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11 and 12 today. I'm not going to read both 11 and 12, if you were wondering. We're going to spend the majority of our time focused at the end of chapter 12, but I, want to, I do want to take a moment because it wouldn't be teaching the word if we didn't actually recognize what God is doing in both of these chapters, and I'm not going to have enough time necessarily to unpack the whole thing, but we're faced again with um, a portion of where Nehemiah is recording and presenting us with another substantial list of names, of individuals, and of families. And it's inter- if you studied it, you'll see that actually it's different than some of the others that we have looked at before that we've actually read through, in that this one encompasses it at some points in a portion, in a portion of chapter 12. He actually goes back and he, he lists those in the time of Zerubbabel. And so essentially what we're getting here is a picture of 100 years of faithfulness of the people of Israel, both of individuals and both of families. And he's identifying priests and Levites, etc., etc. And so I want to just begin with a couple of reminders for us when it comes to lists like these. And I've said some of this before, but again, this is just to remind us of, for our own sake, for our own, our own benefit and, and an encouragement in our own God stories, that God gives us lists like these for a purpose. And this morning, this chapter 11 and chapter 12 is here to, to remind us that God calls God commissions and God cares for individuals. Now that might seem like a really obvious statement, but I just want you to think about that for a moment. He calls, he commissions, and he cares for people, for individual people, for families. This life that we live, church, is just intimately, sorry, is deeply intimate. It's profoundly intimate when we consider what God has done, not just for Christians, but for us. In your own life, what has God done for you? And then think about that through the lens of the love and the care of which he has acted in those ways towards you. So a list like this reminds us that people matter, that we matter, church, that each individual matters and has a part to play in God's plan of redemption. Each of us, church, have a part to play in God's plan of redemption. And this is going to play more into what I want to speak on today concerning the worship of the church because that's really what I want to land in is is the end of chapter 12 and it's the dedication of the wall and there's a bit of a culmination now in this history of Israel that we're going to see. And I want us to look at it today through a lens of how it applies to us as a faith community here in Sacramento in the 21st century. But to say something else that what a list reminds us of is that in addition to it being just deeply personal and reminding us that it's that is us that God looks at and sees and cares for and has redeemed, is that a list like this provides us with an opportunity, church, to reflect on the goodness and the faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant with his people and the faithful obedience of his people in following God. It's like, a, it's, it's like a, a, a list 
of, of those who have gone before, if you will. And God is saying, this is mine. This one is mine. This family is mine. This family has been faithful. This individual has been obedient unto the end. As I was reading this week, one of the commentaries that I have, he made this statement and I just thought I'd share it with you. He says, unexciting as the first half of chapter 11 is, it has a point to make by its refusal to treat anyone, sorry, to treat, sorry, let me rephrase this again or let me restate it. It has a point to make by its refusal to treat bygone generations as of no future interest. Shannon and I, some years ago, we had the opportunity in Washington, D.C. to go to the Holocaust Museum with my mom and dad. And I'm sure it, most, the majority of us here have stood before some type of memorial before where there's the names of all of the individuals who participated or who were victims of a certain circumstance. And Shannon and I and my mom and dad, and we walked through the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and we got to this long glass corridor that was like a suspension bridge that surrounded, and along every wall from floor to ceiling was the name of every uh, family throughout Europe that was a victim of the Holocaust, just written in name. And it's amazing how when you stand before a memorial like that, just the, the sobering reality of how deeply personal that event was and how that is captured in your own heart and mind and suddenly there's like a sobriety that comes over you. Now obviously standing in the Holocaust Museum, it's even more intense than that. But even just standing, we stood before a, a memorial in the Memorial Auditorium in downtown Sacramento of all the men and the women who served in World War II. Actually, in all of the wars beginning at the, I can't remember what it was, it was before World War I. But just all these men and women who participated in serving in the military. And it just becomes so much more deeply personal. And not just personal in the sense that it happened to them, but personal in the sense that it was for your benefit. And so as I, I can only imagine, as, as, these, as these lists of names are read throughout the generations, not just this present one, but throughout all the past generations since these were recorded by Nehemiah, how profound of an impact it would have on the hearts and the minds of the believers that came after these are men and women. Church, let's, let's not despise that every, the remembering that every single word of Scripture is inspired and ho is Holy Spirit inspired and breathed out by God. Even these laborious lists of names that we're presented with from time, that it's here for a reason and it's here for a purpose. And I believe that this is one of those purposes. It's a, it's a reminder of the faithfulness of God. And then, and then lastly, these chapters also pre present to us something really wonderful. And they speak of a particular fulfillment of God's redemptive plan while simultaneously foreshadowing the new covenant era and its, its counterpart. And it's this, the redemption of Jerusalem, the completion of the city walls and the repopulating of the city of Jerusalem, which happens in chapters 11 and 12, where people are called, it says, they cast lots Believing in the supreme, sovereign providence of God, 
They engage by the casting of lots and one out of every 10 is called to move back into the city. So they repopulate the city of Jerusalem having completed and finished the walls and the gates. And of course, the temple now has been completed for decades and the altar has been rebuilt. And as we read that Ezra reestablished the law in the hearts of the people. And last week, as I just kind of completed in chapter 10, that there was a statement of recommitment to the covenant that God had made with his people at Sinai. Having the law read to their hearts and their hearts laid open to their own sinfulness and their disobedience to the law of God, they stand with a recommitment. And now there's a great celebration that takes place in chapter 12 because Jerusalem is complete. Think about just the monumental occasion, church, that that, took, that, that meant for them in the history of the nation. Years, decades, the people have been without, the city had been destroyed. And the place that was God's city of where worship would take place had lied in ruins. And so the redemption of the city of God is what is being communicated here thirdly. It's being repopulated with people from all over the areas, people who are all playing their part in this great orchestration of worship, foreshadowing church, the eternal end goal of God's people. Where in Revelation 21, John sees the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God descending from heaven where God will dwell with man once again. And John says this, that that city as it descended, his picture was that it was having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. That's what this is picturing, foreshadowing for us here in the end of Nehemiah. But what I want to concern ourselves with is found in verses 24 through 43 of chapter 12. And I want us to be reminded again that what has happened then has a most important present-day significance for us today. We ask ourselves, what truth is God speaking to us and what is God instructing us to embody in his church now that we find in these verses? And as we've already taught if the temple represents the worship of the people and the walls, the distinctiveness of God's people and its separation from the surrounding kingdoms and the surrounding cultures, then this final moment of consecration here in chapter 12, whereby the city is finally deemed complete, should model for us a greater eternal truth. I just want us again, think about those three things. The temple, the completion, the rebuilding of the temple representative of the worship of God's people restored. And again, Ezra bringing the law to the people's hearts. It's a picture of, of Jesus Christ at the center of his people's life. The ways of God, the values of God. And then as I've just said, the walls being complete, the body of God being complete. What does this point us towards? Christ at the center of his people being worshipped. Jesus Christ at the center of his church being pursued, being worshipped, being revered as holy as we did today. There was such a beautiful sense of God just being with us. And I so appreciated the Lord speaking through Mario that word of encouragement this morning. Were you encouraged? And I was encouraged. Brothers and sisters, 
this that we are experiencing today, which even itself is a foretaste of a future reality, is what this is in chapter 12 is speaking towards. It's what they longed for, in a sense, we're experiencing now in a greater degree than they experienced then. So let's look at the text together. I'm going to read Nehemiah's chapter 12, beginning in verse 27, and I'm going to read through the verse 47. This portion of the chapter is titled, The Dedication of the Wall. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places. Now, the Levites weren't established. Again, the people were not yet within the city. They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the, uh oh, here we go, the, the Nedophathites. Also from, I was just telling somebody here, no matter how much I practice, I'm like totally mentally psyched out now. I'm so glad we're finishing Nehemiah. If nothing else, just for this reason. All right, all right, here we go. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba, Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates of the wall. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One that went to the south on the wall to the dung gate and after them went Hoshaiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah and Jeremiah and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph and his relatives. Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Mai. I'm going so fast, I'm hoping you don't notice my mispronunciations. Nethanel, Judah, Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. Are you getting this picture in your mind? And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. So there's one choir positioned on the wall. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and in the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Masaiah, Minanim, Min, Min, I lost, Mini, Amin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets, and Masaiah, and Shemaiah, and Eleazar, and Uzi, and Jehonan, and Malchijah, and Elam, and Ezer, and Jehonanon, and Malch- oh, I said that, and I want to do it again. And the singers sang with Jezariah and their leader. Listen, listen, 
Verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. Underline that. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Father, this morning we receive your word. We ask, Lord, that you would continue your work of your spirit. Lord, to show us Jesus through this text, to strengthen the hearts of believers in this room for the work that you've called us to. And Lord, may great joyness be upon our hearts this day for the great work that you have done for us. Father, we love you. And again, Lord, I just say that we're here for you this day. We are here for you now, Lord God. Speak to your people by your word in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So over the last year, I have spoken a decent amount on the nature of the church when she gathers together for worship and the radical transcendent experience that worship is when we engage in it as his people. And I believe that God has been changing our understanding, church, and changing our expectation as to the experience of of pursuing more and seeking more and, and, and really not just for the sake of experience, but for the sake of, of biblical, Christ-centered, Christ-honoring worship when the church comes together. I think God has been doing this within us. And, and again, as I said, I think, I think it actually started around this time last year where the Lord has just been stirring something in my own heart as to what the significance is when we come together. And so holding this true that, it is, that worship is, is both transcendent and it's, it's radical in its experience and in its nature, I want us to continue to pursue this reality and understanding. And chapter 12 now, is, though, is going to present us with the flip side of this worship coin, if you will, which is this, that while worship is incredibly spiritual, it is equally an earthly and a natural endeavor of Christ followers which includes the joyful engagement of our minds and of our bodies. Can I say that again? Right here, right here. They'll help her over there. You guys stay with me. If someone could help her, I would appreciate it. Worship, worship is both spiritual but also earthly in that it requires and invites the totality of who we are to engage within it beyond just our own mental ascension. Are you following me? You hearing what I'm saying? 
So just as a reminder, as to its spiritual nature, that worship is spiritual because its origins lie in the divine person of God and the acts of his eternal will in Christ Jesus. You hearing me? Oh, it's okay. We're so thankful to have you here today. That's right. We helped her last week, and we're we're happy to help her again this week. All right. Let me just reset that, because I'm making a point, and I don't want us to be too distracted. Worship is firstly spiritual, brothers and sisters, because the origins of worship lie in the divine person of God, in the acts of his eternal will in Christ Jesus. But like Christ himself, where his incarnation was first spiritual and then physical, so too is the worship of the church, both spiritual and physical. Moving from the truth right here, church, understanding here and understanding here, in our hearts and in our minds, to worshiping with this, our bodies, as we did this morning. Worship is wonderfully spiritual because it begins with Christ. It begins with a high view of who God is, of his glorious and his majestic nature, of his eternal will to act lovingly and mercifully on behalf of his creation, and the revelation of both his nature and his will to the human heart. Did you follow what I was just saying? And it's also wonderfully spiritual because it includes the mystical union of the saints to Christ himself. And the saints one unto another in this present, which is present in each and every worship act. Recognizing that worshiping in the present reality that we have died, as Paul says. We worship in the present reality that, that as, as Paul says in Colossians, that we've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And what's more, as he goes on to say, that we have been raised with Christ and we are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. All of those things are presently true in this very moment. That is the amazing and mind-blowing nature of worship. And let me just, I think I've shared this quote with you before, but listen to this, just to make this, take this a step further. Concerning this transcendent reality, the author, John Jefferson Davis, in his book, Worship and the Reality of God, which I've spoken of before, he wrote this, By the believing assembly's mystical and covenantal personal bond with the Lord through word, sacrament, and spirit, the assembly experiences sacred time travel. Listen, re-experiencing with the Lord and his people the power of saving events of the past as well as tasting the reality of the future new creation in the down payment that the Holy Spirit is. Did you follow what I just said? Okay, keep thinking. 
this unique, sui generis, meaning a unique or one-of-a-kind moment, this unique, one-of-a-kind moment in authentic New Testament worship can be called ancient future time, or we could call it kingdom time, where the members of the believing assembly chosen from eternity are seen by God as mystically present at the Exodus, at the Last Supper, at the empty tomb, and at Pentecost. For these events were preordained with each member in mind as mystical beneficiaries and participants. Isn't that amazing, church? That that stands to be true of each of us right now. Because of faith in Christ Jesus, we are united with Christ. And so often when we think of being united with Christ, we think of it in terms of being recipients of his death and his resurrection and ascension, which is true. But as it pertains to this moment and us one unto another collectively, everything that was done in redemptive history past was done with us in mind today. And not only as a benefit, but as participants and partakers in that occurrence. Isn't that amazing? I think that's mind-blowing, actually. Tell me any other religion or any other experience in the world that could be said of something like that. There's none. There's none whatsoever. So worship, church, is marvelously spiritual. However, it doesn't end there because, as I said, like Christ, the church is a physical embodiment of a greater truth. And listen, church, each and every week, we are invited, like Thomas, to extend our hands and to touch the resurrected Christ by the Holy Spirit. Every week, church, it isn't just a mental ascent. It is a physical act that includes, as we did this morning, the submission joyfully of our bodies and our minds and our wills to give it to the Lord in worship. And just that beautiful picture of how Thomas reached out and touched the wounds of Christ, touched the resurrected body of Jesus, so by his spirit, as Hebrews says, we are those who taste of the powers of the age to come in this present day. It's the same experience, church, that we have. Look at Psalm 100. I was thinking about this this week. Turn, please. And let's look at this together. Because I was thinking, just as it pertains to the physical act of worship, certainly all of, of the commands of the psalmist at times, all the, the, the great exuberance for the physical response is, is rooted, of course, in a spiritual awareness, but certainly it isn't just hyperbole. Certainly when the psalmist calls for us to give a joyful noise, that a noise is actually to be rendered unto the Lord into the glory of his name. Let's look at Psalm 100. The psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing, knowing that the Lord, he is good. 
It is he who made us and we are his. We are the people of his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to, to him, bless his name for what the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. What's more is that worship is earthly and that invites not just humans into the praise of their almighty creator, but every created thing joins in the exaltation of Christ Jesus. In Psalm 148, which we won't turn to, but Psalm 48 is a call to all created things, to heavens, which we sang this morning, to the angels, to the sun, the moon, stars, creatures of the sea, mountains, and hills. Trees and all the things of the earth and the sky. It says in one, Psalm 145, it is a call to praise the name of the Lord for his majesty is above earth and heaven. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, each and every Sunday is our wall dedication moment. It's our opportunity to come into a place of thanksgiving, joyfully giving praise to the Lord for his majesty and for his greatness and for the redemptive acts that he has done on behalf of his people. This is our moment. We are like the choirs, split, who walk around the wall, so to speak, who in totality of, of the body of Christ give a joyful noise and sing with instruments. I love the fact that they sang with instruments. As a musician, I'm a little bit biased. But I, I, I read something this week as well as <clears throat> from another writer, and I don't remember who it was that I read, but he was talking about, you know, there's arguments within the broader historical church as to what instruments are appropriate and our instruments are appropriate. I mean, we've obviously settled that for ourselves. But he talks about how instruments are an accompaniment to intelligent worship of Christ. And how it's not just words, but the commandment within Scripture is to use all that we have at our disposal to give glory to the Lord, essentially. Each and every Sunday, church, as inhabitants of God's holy city, as his church, we are called to worship with singing and with gladness and with thanksgiving. But there was something that was really significant initially that I want to point out. And it's seen in, back in chapter 12 and in verse 30. Look back there with me, please. Are you guys following me this morning? Am I communicating this all right? Worship is spiritual, but yet it is also equally a physical, wonderfully joyful act that we are to give all of ourselves towards. Look at verse 30. It says this, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people in the gates of the wall. The priests purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates of the wall. Church, the greatest obstacle of worship is sin itself. Because for a sinner to come into the presence of the most holy God, the impurity of sin must first be removed. 
For the people of Israel to worship the Lord as he deserved, they must first be cleansed of their sin. And this cleansing foreshadows the spiritual cleansing which we ourselves required. There's nothing apart from Christ himself, which of course includes everything that he's done, that allows for us to come before God with worship that is pleasing unto him. Nothing apart from Christ, no way apart from Christ, can we come into a place of worship without first being cleansed, which Christ has provided. Hebrews 9.13, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Brothers and sisters, the hindrance for us today in worshiping God is not God himself. It's with us. It's with our own sinfulness that we continue to give ourselves to. But praise be to God that the purification and the cleansing of sin has already taken place. And therefore, for us to enter now, as the writer of Hebrews will also say, that the way was made by the blood of Christ Jesus. And that way is being held open by Christ Jesus himself today on our behalf. So when we come in through these doors, brothers and sisters, come in with an expectation and an understanding that your sins have been cleansed, that your conscience has been cleansed, and that we can easily enter into a place with full assurance of faith into the presence of God, knowing that the way is made open through Christ Jesus himself. They understood that they had to be purified of their sins. We have to have that same realization. Can we walk in here all crusty and dusty like we do from time to time? Yes, we can. But what I'm talking about, church, is the greater, more significant endeavors of worship that the church is to engage in. We have to have this understanding of the totality of what Christ has done so that when we come into this place to worship, it isn't what we did this morning. It's to receive forgiveness. It's to repent. It's to turn. And it's to remind ourselves this is what Christ has done. Amen? How easy it is for us to walk in these doors with funk. And then what happens is, is it requires... 10 to 15 minutes until that, like Tom plays that really great lead and then suddenly we're like, yes, there's God. (laughs) Sometimes we're like that though. Or it takes like a couple songs where we need our pump primed, right? What I'm saying is come primed and ready. Come with your consciences clean because of the purification that Christ has provided through his cross. This redemptive act of remembering what Christ has done is the fuel for our worship each and every Sunday, each and every time we come together. And for the people of Israel, the result of their purification was a worship that was for the record books. Epic choruses. Just, can you imagine that the surrounding 
nations could hear the praises of the people of God. Oh, that that would be us. One of the children of Doug Shearer was recounting a story at his memorial service this last week, and they were talking about in his last moments by his deathbed, they were singing songs, and when they stopped, the children that were outside the window down somewhere were saying, we love what you're singing, we love your songs. Just what a picture that is of the worship of the people of God being enjoyed and heard by those who are surrounding. Brothers and sisters, that's what we are to be like. Maybe we should kick our doors open and turn it up because this baby goes to 11. And so then on the basis of all of this church, of what I've just said, please hear this. Please hear this. We, of all people, have much to be joyful and thankful for. Do we not? Oh, gosh. I was praying about this this morning, just for my own heart. How easily I forget all that I have to be thankful for. And I'm not just talking about my beautiful children and my wife and my possessions. I'm talking about my redeemed life, the state of my heart, the freedom that I have in Christ. Church, this is the fuel of our worship. And I'm not saying that you've got to like every Sunday just, you know, dance and flip. But listen, dancing isn't bad. David danced, Jamie Purdy. Do you hear me? (laughs) I know, you looked at me so I said that. Dancing isn't bad. Like, should... Flags are not okay, (laughs) and male dance teams might not be the way we want to go, but I'm talking about a physically responsive worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let ourselves go in worship of Him. Let yourselves worship with every breath you have, with every ounce of your being. This is what we see here in the people of God. Some of you are hung up on the male dance team. Uh, It's the flags, yeah. That's tough. Let me just wrap this up quickly. Worship church is our opportunity to return to God, praise to him in full recognition of what he's done for us. That's what worship is. To give God, how much did God give to us, church? Everything. How much did of himself did God give to us? All of it. Why do we reserve? Because we're uncomfortable? Was, God un- was, was Jesus uncomfortable when he gave himself? Heck yeah, he was. I mean, that falls short, obviously. But I'm just saying, nothing was reserved on his end for us. Why do we reserve from him? Why? Let's let this place rock out, man. The people of Israel rejoiced that day, and I love the statement, because God had made them rejoice. It almost sounds compulsory, but listen, that's not what the point is of Nehemiah saying it was all that they could do when they saw how God had acted faithfully after all those years, all the years of exile, all the years of living under the judgment, the the just and righteous judgment of God, 
All the years of, of, of being taken from their home and, and the laboring of the years of laboring to rebuild and the cost, all of that, and now it's culminated, it's done. Everything that God did for them now is realized and it's complete. Church, it's realized and it's complete for us today. Rejoice in it. This was their response. God made them rejoice. It's almost like, I, I can't refrain. I can't hold myself back anymore because everything that was done on my behalf. I feel the same way sometimes. And listen, I'm just, I, I'm just as reserved at times as you are. So I'm, I'll put myself out there to say, give myself Allow myself to worship the Lord in a way that is honoring and pleasing to him and in a way that, that just gives all of my body and my mind unto him. Charles Spurgeon says that a rejoicing heart soon makes a praising tongue. I love that statement. A rejoicing heart soon makes a praising tongue. It's all that we can do. Now I ask myself, what types of songs do you think they sang that day? Psalms, most likely, Right? But do you think they were psalms of, of lament and psalms of repentance or songs of, of deliverance? They sure as heck didn't, didn't sing John Mark McMillan's Sloppy Wet Kiss song that day. That was not on the list of songs that they sang. No, they were psalms like Psalm 100 that we sang. Just a call to give a joyful noise to the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember the great works of his hands. Church, can I just say, when it comes to singing, to worship in song, that I think that, that this type of worship this morning, not to toot our own horn, but this type of worship this morning is the def should be the default of God's people. By that I mean songs that are celebratory. They don't have to be upbeat, but that are just praising God for who he is, recognizing the nature of God and the character of God. And yes, there's times for songs of lament. And yes, there's times for songs that, that speak and, and minister to our own hearts. But by and large, church, worship is this way. It's this way. And so the songs that we sing have got to be the same thing. I believe that day it was songs of rejoicing. It was songs of thankfulness. It, we know it was because that's what it says. They gave thankfulness joyfully. Why? Because like them, we're a joy-filled people. Let's be joyful. Let me just lay on this because I want to give time. We need to give time to the Lord's table. So can I just say this, church? If you're taking notes, write down Hebrews chapter 13, verses 22 through 24, because I believe just with this in mind of what I've said this morning, of what we have come to, right? We've not come to a, a mountain that's blazing with fire, but we come to the angels and festival gathering and the innumerable uh, saints that are, you know, of the firstborn. Like, what a picture of New Testament, new creation worship Hebrews chapter 13 is. It's beautiful, brothers and sisters. Can I just say this as an encouragement to us? Especially this week, as we posture ourselves to really be like digging in in faith. Let's come on Sunday morning with this view, the spiritual nature of worship and the physical nature of worship. 
And let's hold those two in tension with each other, where it begins with understanding what he's done and it results in our response to that. And as we come, having fasted and having sought the Lord, let's come next week, brothers and sisters, with just an expectation that God is going to meet us powerfully and exactly how he wants. And let's ready our hearts. Let's come with our hearts being sprinkled clean by the purification of the blood of Jesus Christ, washed. Let's come having been in a place of repentance and having a place of turning and having sought God. Let's come not having to be primed, okay? But let's come ready to engage. How does that sound? That sounds like a pretty fantastic Sunday. Would you please stand with me? And can I ask the musicians to come back up because we're gonna have a song response, but we're also gonna come to the Lord's table before we sing together just to close our time of worship this morning. I wanna invite you today to come and take the elements and take them back to your seats. And as we participate in the Lord's table, I said a lot fast this morning, but I want for you to just think about what I've said. I want for you to meditate as we come to the Lord's table on the incredible work that was done through Christ Jesus, the mind-blowing acts of love and mercy that were shown to us. And I want you to consider it in a deeply personal way and let your heart and your mind be affected by just the severity of love of Christ towards you today. And then I want for you to be aware, which we will together as we come and we partake of the Lord's table, of the total body of Christ Jesus that we are placed within. And of course, in this moment as we come to the table of the Lord, repent of your sin. Receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Turn back to him again and receive the grace to live obediently because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is present and it's here for your receiving today by his spirit.